IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we respond to letters written by you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, wait until you hear his album of classic soul covers, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I just want to be abundantly clear with the IndieCast listener that like my soul out al- my my cover album of soul songs is just gonna be like mediocre to shitty soul songs. Like I I don't want the classic soul covers. I'm gonna go for whoever the you know the Seether or Chevelle of Soul is. I'm covering those songs. Actually, scratch that one. Like Chevelle, they've got, you know, send the pain below, red. They got some bangers. So uh <laughs> shout out to Chevelle. <laughs> Are you going to do that? Uh, my, my least favorite oldie of all time is that uh, that song. Uh, I think it's The Four Seasons. Uh, oh, what Bar a Mitzvah night. classic. Late December, <laughs> 1963. That's, that's the worst <laughs> oldie of all time. So you would definitely be covering that. I think that. that's like such a Bar Mitzvah classic to like diss that is like weirdly <laughs> anti-Semitic. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, you... Not intentional. Yeah, I know. You, you and KFC, man. Like, you got... <laughs> oh, man. No, but... Uh, oh, What a Night and Let's the, Hear the show, for the Boy. Those are two bar mitzvah classics. You cannot man, fuck with this, those two. This episode has taken a turn. <laughs> um, I, I felt the need to acknowledge that there's a new Bruce Springsteen album out today that we're not going to be talking about in this episode because it is a covers album where he's doing soul songs from mainly the 60s and 70s and i know there's a commodore song from like the early 80s that he covered nice shift, that right he made a mu- yeah that he made a music video for um and of course i love bruce springsteen normally i'd be excited about a new bruce springsteen album but i feel like an album where bruce springsteen sings old r&b songs it seems like an idea that like someone who hates Bruce Springsteen would make up in order to make fun of Bruce Springsteen. You know, it, it, it just seems like the ultimate like aging boomer rock record, you know, like the big chill of Bruce <laughs> Springsteen albums. And I love Bruce. I don't want to diss Bruce. I actually wrote about Bruce today. I, I, I wrote a huge piece ranking all of his albums, including the new one. It's called only the strong survive. Uh, <laughs> not very high on the list. Spoiler alert. Uh, it was between only a strong survive and born to run. I was trying to figure out like which album do I like more. <laughs> I went with born to run. Um, I don't know. I just like Bruce. The, I, I feel like he's leaning into the least cool aspects of his music and persona with this record. I'm just surprised that this is the first time Bruce Springsteen has done this. Now, mind you, like, <laughs> I mean, the classic soul album, like the classic soul cover album is like the sort of thing I'm sure Van Morrison and Eric Clapton, like those are the people it brings to mind or like Neil Young is a joke doing something along those lines. But, um, well, wait, I, I got to find out like, where does the album with 57 channels and nothing on, uh, rank for whatever Human reason, touch is, look, you know, better than me. Is that the one that's surprisingly high on my list? That's an album that I can respect as, uh, as a train wreck. You know, like I, I would put Human Touch over the covers album. I just out of principle, I feel like an, all, an album of all originals you have to put higher than the covers album. I just feel like 
at least you're writing your own songs. Yeah. You know, there's just maybe that's the rockest in me <laughs> speaking, but uh, you know, I I appreciate the the attempt by Bruce Springsteen in 1992 to make a comment on cable television. <laughs> I guess that's what he was doing. It's an extremely with that song. Neil Young song to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very half-assed. Um, but yeah, I did write about Bruce this week, and I did write a little bit about this album. But we're not going to be talking about that no. in this episode, other than I guess right now. Um, <laughs> are we obligated, Ian, as a podcast who talks way too much about the 1975? to uh, discuss that viral video this week of Maddie Healy eating a raw steak on stage at Madison Square Garden. And this sounds like the setup of a joke. This sounds like something that I would make up to make fun of Maddie Healy. But this actually happened. And I don't know why. Do you know the circumstances of this? I'm looking at the... I included in our show notes the stereo gum link and like Maddie Healy ate a raw steak while touching himself at MSG is part of the URL, which entertains me to no end. <laughs> he was touching himself too? Yeah. Come on, man. Like talk about burying the lead. Um, it, you know, you can make the argument <laughs> oh that God. like both of these things are just some sort of commentary on toxic masculinity and how like both of them is – just like kind of reverting back to sort of cave person concept of manhood. Uh, look, <laughs> this is a mailbag episode. And, you know, I don't know if anyone actually sent something to the mailbag of us about us addressing it. Uh, but people certainly bypassed the mailbag. Like this is to ask me directly on Twitter. It's like, hey, are you and Steve going to address this? You and Steve need to address this because we've like covered far less essential 1975 news i'm just i'm just like wondering if this this is like setting the stage for him to do similar things you know throughout the tour i'm seeing them in about two and a half weeks let's call it and i don't know is he going to tailor this performance to whatever city you know like he's going to do the same thing eating a bowl of cincinnati skyline chili or a lobster (laughs) roll just like really like they thought Springfield was the most rocking city in America, but it's actually Shelbyville. Like, I don't know. Does, uh, does San Diego have like a signature dish? California burrito. Okay, so he's going to be eating a burrito. Maybe he'll, he'll like rub it on his chest or something. Uh, I don't know. It, is this like the Fear Factor era of the 1975? Something about this smacks of desperation to me. It reminds me of that uh, Onion headline about Marilyn Manson where... Marilyn Manson's going door to door, still trying to shock people. Is this just Maddie Healy feeling like we need some heat on this record? So I'm going to do something provocative on stage. I guess I don't really understand like the context of this. <laughs> Was this part of a song? Was he just having a snack? I don't under. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't really get it. I mean, this is like kind of aligned with the the viral video of Billy Corgan eating like chips and hummus on stage. So yeah. look, I mean, these shows are long. People need to have snacks. You know, as a dietitian, we have like the rule of threes. You know, where people probably shouldn't go more than three hours between eating. And you know, if you're like a band with a huge catalog, such as the 1975 or the Smashing Pumpkins. Fuck it, have a snack. Pull out the Cliff Bar. I'm like, uh, fuck. It. I I bring Cliff Bars and shit to shows nowadays where I'm gonna see the opening act. Uh, I'm I'm glad that our most famous artists are acknowledging the fact that hey, you just need a snack sometimes, man. Yeah, I'm I'm giving Billy Corgan the edge on this one. The <laughs> chips and hummus thing, I think is pretty funny. Uh, because he's like leaning up against like a like a speaker. 
on stage. I don't know if like James Eha was playing a guitar solo, or maybe there was like a Jimmy Chamberlain drum solo happening. By the way, I went to see Smashing Pumpkins and Jane's Addiction last week, and I made it about a half hour into the, into Jane's Addiction set, and I got a text from my wife saying that the family hamster died. So I had to step out during Ted Just Admit It. Jane's on is on stage. I go find a quiet place. I I, I FaceTime with my kids, weeping, because this is the first pet that has died on their watch. So I had to leave. I didn't see Smashing Pumpkins. The, 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 a dead hamster totally screwed up my Friday night, and I had to I had to con, you know, console my my grief stricken children about the hamster. So I saw about half of Jane's addiction set, which was. Really good yeah. and really unintentionally hilarious. Yeah. Like Perry Farrell is. Uh, I mean, have you seen any videos of their show? Like they're, he's on stage with like three burlesque dancers. Okay. Wearing lingerie and thongs and. Uh, I mean, he's he's like he's like gallivanting with them on stage. It was like, wow! Like this guy. It's 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 like how Howard Stern can get away with saying anything because people are just like, well, that's Howard Stern. Right. It's like Perry Farrell is just like bulletproof, I think, in terms of <laughs> being canceled or objectionable behavior because it was the most like 1989 show I've seen this century, like in a really long time. I think that's well. First off, it just I think shows the. Um you know, the effect of inflation, because if this were like peak Jane's, he'd have at least a half dozen burlesque dancers. But uh, <laughs> Well, I, they're an opening act. If they were headlining, you'd have a battalion of burlesque right. dancers, I'm sure. Um, I, I think that your experience of the Jane's Addiction show, you know, and I'm not laughing because of your family's misfortune, you know, like, I'm sorry that your hamster died. I just think it, po- <laughs> I, you know, I think you like, I think people would joke. It's like, oh yeah, you know, it's going to be like 50 year olds, like doing Coke in the bathroom or whatever, trying to relive 1992 and reality, like shows of this nature tend to be, you know, like dads and people with obligations. That was actually true as well. When I saw, uh, Dia de los Deftones over the weekend. You know, people just assume that it's going to be, you know, like angry ass metalheads, um, you know, wearing flannels and board shorts in 40 degree weather. And yes, people were wearing flannels and board shorts in 40 degree weather, but for the most part, it's like dads and couples. Uh, yeah. These shows like kind of price out the uh, dregs of society. Yeah. It's a good show. I like Jane's. I'm, I was sad to miss uh, Smashing Pumpkins. I I've heard, heard their shows are actually really good these days. Yeah, it's good. Good set list too. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I'll catch him next time. I guess. <laughs> um, I feel like another topic we need to address before we get to the our extended mailbag is another viral item this week, which was the tour poster for a festival called Sick New World. Which takes place in Las Vegas. Is this is this a new festival? Yeah, I'm, it's it's. Okay. Um, I'm sure there have been like some permutations of this festival bouncing around, but this is the first of its kind. So it's basically a new metal festival, or at least that's what the headliners are. You have System of a Down on the top line, second line Corn, Your Deftones, and Incubus. Then you get to the third line, Evanescence, <laughs> who I, I made a joke about Evanescence, I think last week. Bad idea. On Twitter. <laughs> and uh, um, that 
account that Crazy Ass Moments in New Metal History, which is like a really good Twitter account run by Holiday Kirk, I think is the guy. I think I saw site. him at Dia Delos Deftones. I'm not sure. I, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I did, but yeah, I'm like, is this the is this the guy I know from like the New Metal account? Yeah, I think I think my name is Mud with him already because I was involved in that Woodstock '99 documentary. But anyway, he sicked a bunch of people on me. Uh. so uh, my mentions were, were were angry, but it was okay. Uh, you have Turnstile, Chevelle, and the Sisters of Mercy on the third line. Um, I mean, I just kind of want to read this whole poster yeah, it's, because it's, it's incredible. The poster's amazing. Uh, like This is a festival. I like some of these bands. I don't know if I'd want to go to this festival, but I love the poster. So I'm not going to read every line Damn of this it. poster, but <laughs> but I do want to say, okay, on the fourth line, we have Papa Roach, Death Grips, and Mr. Bungle. <laughs> Incredible line Incredible. there. I love it. On the fifth line, we have Placebo, yes. Ministry, and she wants revenge. <laughs> they are How's always that? they are always available. She wants revenge is always available for your like nostalgia uh, package tour. What's that meme about? Like you know the ultimate like circle to pass a joint in. You know like that that, that, that <laughs> dream be a good blunt circle. rotation. Yeah, dream blunt rotation. On the sixth line, you have a hundred gex. Who? What's the status of hundred gex at, at at the moment? I feel like they were think piece. Uh, you know, fodder for music critics in like 2020. And I haven't heard anything about them really since then. I don't know if if they're still buzzy or not. Like, do you have any read on the 100 Gex phenomenon at this point? Less than zero. I have absolutely no clue. Like, I, I, I think they 100 Gex is bigger than music. Um, I just think they more or less exist as like a point of conversation. Uh, maybe they are like uh, Dr. Dre style perfectionists working on their detox or whatever, <laughs> or, you know, maybe they just don't like, I, I, I have no clue or maybe they're just, maybe they really are the die ant border of the modern times, but nonetheless yeah, they seem a little like that to me. They have like a little bit of a, of a die ant word vibe, uh, but you know, we'll see. Yes. Um, they're on the same line as skinny puppy and coal chamber. Wow. Um, my favorite line is the eighth line of the poster. You have Soulfly, P.O.D., Seven Dust, Hoobastank, and Alien Ant Farm. This shit rules so hard. <laughs> okay, and then the tenth line. This is another line I like. This because this is like now we're getting like a little uh, a field I think from the uh, overall concept because you have Filter, Lacuna Coil. The Melvins, huh. Failure, and Stabbing Westward. Fuck yeah. By the way, how many lines are on this poster? Because you're at like 10, and these bands are way too big. These bands are way too big to be the bottom line. I was going to say Stabbing Westward, they're like below, they're well below like POD and Hoobastank. I don't know. I guess my, uh, I don't have a good read on like what the market is <laughs> for, for this. Because like Death Grips. Yeah. They're super high, but I bet they insisted on being on the same line as Mr. Bungle. That seems like a perfect <laughs> pro- like progression there. Um, I, I love this poster. It's just amazing. I and again, it just it just presents so many questions. Like, yeah, she wants revenge. 
Again, they're on the fifth line. That just seems high for them. But I don't know. Maybe in Vegas, I could see Vegas being a She Wants Revenge town. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're well, they're actually like a really L.A. band. I saw them at, um, I saw them at, uh, what's Just Like Heaven, the, uh, blog, the, uh, blog nostalgia package tour. Um, I also love that there's at the bottom, which I guess this might be the 13th line, you have, uh, like bands like Fiddlehead and Narrowhead and Super Heaven, like the run for cover, like Tumblr Kid, uh, line and also Panchico like this is a band that ex- uh, made an album in 2000 that was only rediscovered in 2020 I can't believe they're performing also body count cold like orgy like how have you how, how can you not mention the fact that orgy is playing this alongside uh like the fact that we have like orgy and turnstile like what a, yeah. what a festival yeah uh yeah, I mean, I, we've literally read almost every line of this poster <laughs> because, and and really, this whole episode could just be us like reading lines from this. I think that would be a good bit of, you know, this should become a meme where someone just tries to come up with the most insane festival, and you just line up four bands on a line that just seem like they don't belong at all. I mean, you you probably don't even have to make it up. We're going to see more festivals like this get announced. And it just does seem like a race to see who can have the most inexplicable bill. But, I mean, this festival will do well. And, look, it's in Vegas. I bet it'll be a, a ton of fun. Yeah. it's it. You know, we talked last week about, like, whether uh, when we were young was the future of music festivals. And this is this is same location, uh, you know, same sort of idea of, like, kind of, I, I like to think of this as maybe like the Crow original soundtrack, the extended universe, because, <laughs> right. you know, like new metal, quasi rap metal, but there's some goth like this, this, this bill makes sense in a, in a way. Like I, I see it as just like kind of wacky in some ways, but especially given my experience being on you know, alt rock radio in 2001, like, yeah, you were playing some placebo, you were playing some system of a down, you were playing some Chevelle. And uh, I think this is going to be, I mean, I don't know if I'd go to it, but, you know, just because, like, I don't like being in Vegas all that much and, you know, festivals are kind of a nightmare to navigate. But one th- the thing about this festival, aside from, like, you know, people making their usual jokes about new metal or, like, you know, goth rock or what have you, is this idea that mashing these uh, waves of nostalgia together is like somehow ripping off a bunch of suckers. Like, I can't believe some idiot would pay 500 bucks to see this. It's like, no, I can't believe someone would pay 70 bucks to see Chevelle on their own just to like see, you know, send the pain below. This seems like just a massively awesome deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. It When you go line by line, there's some weird juxtapositions, but overall, it totally makes sense. And... uh yeah. Let people, let people have fun, you know? Like this is a fun this is this is for like yeah, it's like a certain type of dude or a certain type of woman who, you know, isn't particularly uh well received, you know, in the critical community, but fuck it, man. Let these people have fun. You know, maybe we can get them to send us to this festival. Hell we can yeah. do a live remote from Sick New World. I would be into that. I want to go see uh She Wants Revenge and Placebo play after ministry. I think it'd be a lot of fun. 
Uh, let's get to our mailbag, and it's an all-mailbag episode this week. We've got some great letters from our listeners. If you want to hit us up for a future mailbag, you can write to us at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, you want to read our first letter, Ian? <laughs> I would love nothing more to read the first letter. So this comes to us from Drew, a citizen of the world, does not specify where they're writing from. But uh, they... Wait, hold on. He, I, I, he's in Cincinnati. Uh, Drew from Cincinnati. I had to follow up with Drew to tell us. When you write us, tell us where you are. We always like to know it. I had to follow up with Drew, but he told us Cincinnati. I'm sure he appreciated your Skyline Chili shout out. <laughs> yeah, unintentional. In the episode. Yeah. Yeah, shout to, uh, you know, the National Afghan Wigs, uh, the Covington yeah. Airport. Uh, WKRP? Yep, absolutely. Cincinnati, IndyCast kind of town. Um, in the most recent episode of IndieCast, you mentioned that the 10th anniversary of the of Muse's The Second Law has passed, but no one complained about the lack of an episode. I'd like to use this opportunity to make my voice heard that there is still demand for hearing you hash this one out. Not really a question, but certainly a mailbag. Uh, best regards, Drew. Yeah, you know, when I made that comment about us forgetting the Second Law anniversary and no one complained about it, I suspected that we would get this letter from somebody. <laughs> that someone would step up and go, wait a minute. I do want to hear a conversation about the second law. So, to be honest, I don't have a whole lot to say about this album. I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia entry about the second law. The second law is a concept album about a deteriorating planet that's inhabited that its inhabitants can no longer live on. Major lyrical themes of the album include societal collapse, totalitarianism, and the second law of thermodynamics, which is the uh, which the album's title references. Do you know what the second law of thermodynamics is? I'm trying. I, by I'm the way? pretty sure I saw this reference on The Simpsons once. I think it's like that an object in motion tends to stay in motion, or or is that the one where like energy cannot be created, or uh, it, 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 it like energy can't be created or like used. No, no, it's the, first, it's the first one. It's like, Lisa, in this house, we obey the laws of thermodynamics. See, I looked this up, <laughs> and I read it, and I, I don't know if I totally understand it, but my understanding is that the second law of thermodynamics is that if you have something that's hot, it'll progress to something that's cool. Mm. Yes. That's what the Simpsons <laughs> tried to get across. And also, yeah. boy, wouldn't Muse love to hear the fact that you tried to understand the second law of thermodynamics, <laughs> and you were not fucking intelligent enough to wrap your head yeah, around look. it? Matthew Bellamy, he is an idiot savant, okay? He he has both of the things going on. He's smarter and dumber than all of us. The album's cover art features a map of the human brain's pathways, which was taken from the Human Connections Project. The singles Survival, Madness, Follow Me, Supremacy, <laughs> and Panic Station were released in promotion. Survival was chosen as the official song of the 2012 Olympics. Um, I feel like every Muse album is a statement against fascism that manages to sound really fascist. <laughs> you know, like they're putting out singles called Supremacy and Madness and Follow Me. There's, there's something like a little, uh, I don't know, like Mussolini-esque or something <laughs> about everything that they do. But it's couched as a critique of fascism. Yeah, it's sort of, I don't know. That's my take on the second law. That's all I got on this album. Do you have any profound 
uh, thoughts I on mean, the second law? How can you not have profound thoughts when listening to the second law? So I'm I, I'm like wondering, you know, I, I almost want to go like know your meme style evolution of like how this somehow became one of our <laughs> like most enduring bits. Uh, maybe it's like the fact that you know, of the three Muse albums I reviewed for Pitchfork, like, this was by far the most fun to write. Um, you know, 2012, maybe, like, the kind of expiration date for, like, pan reviews that are funny as opposed to, like, you know, trying to, like, make some sort of, like, societal commentary. But, um, yeah, this is, like, what I actually did listen to this in preparation for this podcast because, you know, my hustle is different. And, um, this, <laughs> it's amazing how little my opinion of this album has shifted. Um, I think this is the, the one that in a way prefaced the softening of critical opinions on Muse because they just fully embrace camp here. Like I think before this one, uh, whether it's like origin of symmetry or the one with super massive black hole on it, like this is like, that's like peak era muse when you could probably make the argument that they're like oh muse is actually a good band at one point but this is where they start to you know get into their like we made a james bond theme we made an olympic theme um i think there's some parts of this like supremacy is the one where he sort of sounds like wario from super mario kart like i'm gonna win uh yeah this is just i think muse that they're unintentionally funniest like nowadays they're trying to be kind of intentionally like we're in on the joke funny but um yeah this is like if you if you want to just kind of relive the point where muse was at it was still at a point where it was like fun to make fun of muse then the second law is really worth revisiting i mean it's just some of the most ridiculous like i can't believe people make this music type of music well, their next album was Drones, and that's the one with the big hand. Yeah, that one was not on the fun. cover. And um, yeah, I, I don't know because I feel like the the album was super massive black hole. That's Black Holes and Re- Revelations. That was two thousand six, and that is the album with Knights of Sedona on yeah, it, which peak seems like Guitar that. Hero. And that's a pretty campy music video. I don't know what they were doing here in this era because the album before. The second law was the resistance. Oh yeah, and I'm like, is this like a Tea Party record? Like, <laughs> it's always weird with them. Like, where do they fall politically? I, I, I it's <laughs> it's muddled with them a little bit. Um, I think they're sort of Joe Rogan. Like, hey, I'm just asking questions here. You know, where it's like, yeah, that sounds right. It's, it's like I would describe it as kind of like crypto libertarian in the sense that, like you were saying, they're they're. They have like a weirdly fascist take on combating fascism, like sort of like Ayn Rand or what, like Ayn Rand or what have you. It seems to be like very individualistic um, and you know, like anti-society, but also in a way that like utilizes the uh, raw elements of fascism. Uh, like, let, let me just be abundantly clear that I, I don't think Matt Bellamy is a fascist, nor is he advocating like for fascism. It's just that like. As an artist, you can't control what your fans or what have you do with it. Um, but it kind of fits in within that, like, like Joe Rogan slash tool. Uh, I'm just asking questions here, kind of. Yeah, uh, I, I, I just think they're playing with imagery that in, in a not completely coherent kind of way. So I think sometimes they make the opposite point of, 
what they're probably trying to do. Like I know Glenn Beck loves this band. Like he's <laughs> there you can is, go on yeah. YouTube and just see Glenn Beck raving about how Muse is his favorite band. So I mean I I think that that says it all there. But anyway, I don't think we need to seriously analyze this album anymore. I, I feel like the idea of us talking about this was probably more fun than us actually doing it. That that's my suspicion here. Mm. But you know, I hope Drew's happy that he got his second law conversation. Um, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll see you again with this uh, second law revisitation when it's uh, 2032 and we're still uh, hashing out <laughs> trends for the uh, 20th anniversary. We're just going to beat this bit to death over the course <laughs> of decades. It's going to be great. Um, our second letter comes from Jade, who is uh, from Chicago. Thank you, Jade, for writing to us. Jade asks, wondering what your feelings are about indie as an aesthetic versus genre in the meaning of indie in this day and age. Why is Taylor Swift on indie playlists? Is Jack Antonoff indie? What is indie in 2022? Big question here. Do you want to try to answer this one? Yeah. Chicago via Gainesville. Like, I know this. I I know Jade has had an against me phase. I know. Like, this is like. (laughs) classic fest listeners so i mean yeah this question kind of gets at the uh hey can you explain your entire existence indycast um also day and age i know this is not like a peripheral shout out to the killers album but it could be i mean i think that's you know relevant given that like our kill we talked about the killers on indycast but a band that is sometimes called indie rock even though they're not really Indie rock in terms of mm-hmm. their label or even their stature. <laughs> but they did make music. the song Glamorous Indie Rock and Roll. That's true. So I think that, you know, as someone who makes, who has done a lot of emo genre lists over the years, I've had to grapple with uh, trying to describe the difference between, you know, a musical genre and the culture surrounding it. And what I've learned is that pretty much all music genres that have lasted for you know several decades probably have started out as like literal descriptors of like what it does what it sounds like or what it does you know like rhythm and blues grunge gangster rap etc like trap um and then they eventually end up as broad signifiers of the culture that sprouted up around it so i mean obviously with indie you know that's like independent music independent labels what have you um I think it barely worth merits mention that like this does not describe like in like being on an independent label like even like the artists that are on indie labels like Phoebe Bridgers or Japanese Breakfast I mean these are like major ass artists so I think the best way to understand indie rock and maybe even like the only useful way of thinking about it is to consider it in the same way that alternative was once used because you know going back to Jane's Addiction when I wrote that review of uh, Nothing Shocking for Pitchfork Sunday Review, uh, you find out, like, you know, alternative rock, like, really meant something at one point. It was, like, this combination of independent labels and college rock, like, stuff that you weren't going to hear up against, say, like, Damn Yankees or Warrant in the late 90s. Um, And eventually, as it, you know, it became more or less synonymous with, uh, you know, mainstream rock. So you could still say alternative, um, you know, describe like Bush or Candlebox or what have you. Uh, And it still meant something, even though it was like so far divorced from its original intent. So, yeah, Jack Antonoff is indie. 
you know, like uh, Taylor Swift. I mean, I don't know if she actually is on indie playlists or whether that's just like an assumption, but like you can make that argument. Um, I think it's a useful description of things. And so if you think, uh, and again, this is like a highly Gen X uh, prism to view things through, but think of it like, it, would you say would you use the word alternative to describe this situation in the mid '90s? Then yeah, it's probably indie. It's funny that you bring up alternative because in a way, if that term wasn't totally passe, it would in a way be more appropriate for a Phoebe Bridgers mm-hmm. or a Japanese Breakfast, you know, because they are more akin to like that '90s alternative idea than like a classic indie rock idea. So I don't know if alternative. And there's no chance that term's going to ever come back, but in that way, I think it could have a utility that would be useful now. I mean, it is worth pointing out that there is still a whole lot of people making, quote, underground music, mm. you know, who are indie rock in the classic sense. And we talk about those artists every week on the <laughs> show, usually in our recommendation corner segment. Uh, so that still exists. What's interesting, and this is something we've talked about on the show, is that in the past decade, the uh, signature artist or the banner artist or like the best known artist associated with indie music, along with the gatekeepers of indie (laughs) music, have really made it their project to erase any meaningful distinction between indie music and pop music. In a way that seems totally antithetical to like what this music was in a classic sense. I mean, if you're looking at indie music like in the 80s and 90s, there was this idea of not being mainstream and being that in a proud way. And and almost having a more confrontational posture toward mainstream culture. And, of course, now that's looked at as also being totally passe. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the alternative rock era of indie in a way was in the two thousands because you had bands like Arcade Fire and the Shins and Bonnie Vare that were very successful, but there was a sensibility to those artists that again seemed different from pop music. You could say because of the way they carried themselves or the way they sounded you could make a distinction there and it was almost like you're making a choice. Like I, 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 I want to be a part of this culture that seems separate from more of a mainstream culture. And then, you know, we mentioned Taylor Swift. I feel like her record 1989 mm-hmm. was the end of that because she basically made like a Heim record <laughs> and she wasn't looked at as like a carpetbagger. No. You know, people loved what she did. They, they loved that she was making a record that was influenced by like a lot of like the indie pop of that time. And really, I think that's the moment where any distinction between like what she was doing and what Kime was doing or Lord or the 1975, it just became really academic at that point. And of course now, you know, in 2022, you have a situation where like Mitski is touring stadiums with Harry Styles. Yeah. And next year you're going to have Phoebe Bridgers, Haim and, uh, Biba Doobie opening for Taylor Swift on her stadium tour. So I don't know. It is really hard to define. I, I really don't know how to define indie music other than the media that covers yeah. this stuff. That seems to be the only way 
it's defined now. Like Taylor Swift has, I guess, indie credibility because she's reviewed on indie music sites. But uh, you know, someone else in her lane. I'm trying to think of like, 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 like what's a pop star who doesn't get covered? Like Megan like Trainer. The... I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like, I, and again, this yeah. is this is me like really uh, struggling to think of like pop artists who aren't being covered because you know the people at her level would be you know like well no one's really at her level but like even just like a maybe a slight step down like i don't know like dua lipa or uh fuck uh, you know dua lipa (laughs) that's but she's but but she's like wildly covered so the answer is nobody really you have to like look at like charlie puth or something like that yeah or like segments of country music right you know i think like most country music hasn't been uh, absorbed into that yet. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's just, I mean, you can look at this in a wider context of how all culture now is kind of put in the same bucket, you know, like having distinctions or stratifications between different worlds in all forms of culture. It's really hard to do in the internet age. And this seems like that's part of it. Yeah. And that's why, Um, and that's why we have a hundred gecks, uh, touring with, uh, with, uh, Soulfly (laughs) and body count. (laughs) You know, it, yeah. it, the, the, the inexorable march of time uh, knocks down all distinctions between genres. Uh, boy, it's a really nihilistic way to look at indie cast. But hey, if we're covering it, it's indie. How about that? There you go. You want to read our next letter? So this next letter comes to us from Phil from Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Not Brookline, Massachusetts. Or the other, I'm sure there are other Brooklyns. But nonetheless, yeah, this is the Brooklyn, Brooklyn. One thing that's always interested me regarding acts with long careers is those that see a dip in popularity and then make a roaring comeback both in terms of quality as well as cultural relevance. In my lifetime, Green Day and U2 are the most obvious examples. Green Day with American Idiot and U2 with all that you can't believe behind after pop, which, great as it is, failed to connect with a broader audience. My question is, what current band or artist that is currently on a bit of a downward trend do you think has the most potential for comeback not just in terms of critical acclaim, but also in terms of critical relevancy and popularity. So he's asking, he's bringing up Green Day and U2 as examples where they actually had like a, a major comeback record mm-hmm. that that put them back on top and, and made them a big deal. And that's an interesting question. There's also the manner of the matter of artists that just get rediscovered. By a new audience, you know, Kate Bush, I guess, being the most recent example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems more plausible <laughs> to me. It's hard. I'm, I'm trying to think of like a band that was really big, then faded, and then, you know, and, and now are in a position where they could have a comeback record. Arcade Fire tried to do that this year, and then uh, I don't think the record was totally and then what happened? on the level, and then there was the other circumstance yes. with Wynn Butler. Um, is there an, an example of that that you can think of where someone has like a comeback record? It's so hard to say because I think that um, you're, you're right that like Phil's kind of asking two separate questions. There's like the one of like a American idiot, all that you can't leave behind, where a band or an artist uh, has like a downslide, and all of a sudden, like they just re- rediscover, like we're back, and uh, you know, reminding people what they love about them. Um, 
So if we're, I feel if, like the Strokes kind of had that with the new Abnormal. Yeah. I know a lot of people love that album. I mean, but it's not on the level of like American Idiot. Well, or, no. you know what yeah. I mean? Where it, <laughs> it's just a huge, huge hit. Um, yeah, it's hard for me to think of someone who could do who has fallen off and then could have the potential to just yeah. be huge again. The answer to this is like not smashing pumpkins. You know, like that, like that would be an obvious answer, except the fact that like they release so much new music and like all of it is terrible. But um, I mean, let's not rule out you two because like, you know, lest we forget uh, if we're talking about like critical acclaim, like songs of innocence was Rolling Stone's number one album of 2014, which you uh, recently pointed out. And then there was, Songs of Experience, which is the one that people forget about because it wasn't preloaded on their iPod. I think this one's more fascinating because it came out in December of 2017 and still managed to be the number three album on Rolling Stone's year-end list that year, like a week after it was released. So, uh, look, I think Bono's... But that's the end of it because Jan Winter's not there anymore. I don't see a new U2 record doing numbers Mm. like that. On like a Rolling Stone list. That would, that would be, be su- such a canary in the coal mine for... I mean, I kind of... I mean, I, I, I'm i a little nostalgic for that era of Rolling Stone, I have to say. <laughs> where Jan Winner was just putting his thumb on the scale. And he's like, <laughs> the second best album of 2014 is High Hopes by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Which is like the worst Bruce Springsteen album ever. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I miss that era i never thought i would but i I thought, oh yeah that was because he was such an auteur of that site even when he was steering them in the wrong direction it it was an interesting thing to behold but uh yeah i i think the better question here or maybe the more answerable question is like who is set up for like a kate bush type revival Mm -hmm. and i think there's some good answers for that that I have. I'm curious what you think in that regard. Well, I'm thinking if not, you know, a Kate Bush style, uh, like the, the, the level of that, um, or Metallica for that matter. Like I would like in the, in the space between those two stranger things episode, I think Metallica is exactly the kind of band that would benefit from that. But I think they already got that bump, but I'm thinking more along the lines of, you know, using the recent Pitchfork 90s list as a bit of a metric, you know, like thinking about the fact that like Tom Petty and the Cranberries and Sheryl Crow and Third Eye Blind were on there. Um, you know, there there are a couple of, uh, you know, qualifications I usually make, like first of which is like, were they popular but sort of taken for granted? Like, are they female artists? Maybe ones that were like wildly acclaimed but fell out of vogue um, in the early 2000s when, you know, critical things uh, shifted. And are they a critically maligned act that was like super popular amongst young people who are now critics looking to put their mark on things? Um, I mean, when I when I view it in that way, REM is like always a candidate, but I think that they've been a candidate for so long that I can't imagine a way that they actually get that bump because like, you know, they haven't embarrassed themselves in any meaningful way uh, since they broke up and they broke up pretty definitively. Um, you know, Beth- yeah, and I, I feel like they're like on an even keel too. Yeah. I, 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 I think that uh, there's a general level of respect for them, but yeah, they're not going to be have that sort of like phenomenon type thing. It, that, that's hard for me to envision with them. Yeah, I, I think that like 
maybe like I, if you if you want to think who's the next Beth Orton, you know, Beth Orton being a critical favorite in 2021, maybe that's like everything but the girl. They have like a new album coming out. Um, an artist I'm like really surprised hasn't gotten a major, if not reassessment, reappreciation, especially with like Kate Bush, uh, having the best 2022 of probably any artist is Tori Amos. Um, I think she fits all of the characteristics of someone who was like really critically acclaimed in the nineties. Um, you know, I, and I look my, 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 my CD collection in that time, like skewed extremely male and problematic, but I, I still, uh, I still listen to like every single Tori Amos album a lot. And, you know, she sort of, sort of lost the plot, you know, with Scarlet's walk, but her nineties stuff is like fucking incredible. And she's kind of, she seems like the last major female alternative artist who hasn't had that revival yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like you, you have Lance Morissette, you have like Liz Fair, right. you know, Hole, mm-hmm. uh, all the way down the line. Tori Amos is like a major artist from that decade. I, f- I feel like there still hasn't been, uh, she hasn't had her moment yet. And I, I, yeah, it seems like she's overdue. Absolutely. Yeah. My, um, yeah, Boys for Pele. I mean, just a fucking fascinating record. Uh, but yeah, like Choir Girl Hotel. Like the not. This is not net recommendation corner, but you know, even Scarlet's Walk has like its moments as well. Like to Venus and back. I just love that shit. And you know, I'm just kind. I don't know what is you know because it's not like she like releases you know Smashing Pumpkins level of output. She's still an active recording artist. Um, yeah, that that one seems like a very ripe for rediscovery artist. Um, but if we want to talk about an art, like an artist who meets both qualifications, which is that an artist who might release a new album and like experience a significant, uh, bump in popularity and also allow people to reappreciate them on a level of like Metallica or Kate Bush, there's like only one real answer to that. And that's the cure. Um, because for, you know, they've, influenced like every single iteration of indie or alternative rock since they've existed. Um, despite the fact that they haven't released an album, I qualify as like better than just okay. Like literally in 30 years, like wish is their last album that I consider better than good. And I love blood flowers more than the average person. Um, they've never managed to ruin their reputation or like even like have, any significant negative impact on it. Um, and I know, like, I, I know we've been saying this for like the past decade, but I really think this is going to be the year 2023. That is where they finally released that record. You know, they're playing live, they're including new songs, you know, even though they got like the most generic, like, I can't believe the cure. haven't made five songs with this title yet. Type titles. Um, it could very well happen. And you know what? It's probably going to be pure fan service the way Blood Flowers was or like 413 Dream. But even like a half decent like Netflix Say by the Bell type reboot cure album where it's just like, hey, remember this shit you love from the 90s? It's back and sort of different. Uh, you know, if I get an album that's anywhere near as good as Blood Flowers, I'm going to be like parading in the street. So yeah. I think we're ready for the cure. I like that answer a lot. I like the Tori Amos answer a lot. I think they're both artists who are still defined by their best work and the lesser albums they've put out since then are just non-entities. 
And I mean that in a good way. Yeah. Like it, it's not as if like with Smashing Pumpkins, I think they did put out records that made people think less of their their best work, at least for a while. But like with the cure, it's like who really remembers what they put out since Wish? I think most people <laughs> only re- really remember the 80s and like with Tori Amos they only really remember the 90s and like they love those records so the things that they've done since then it hasn't detracted from what they've done and it does seem like a situation where if either one of them put out just a solid record that there would be a lot of goodwill out there mm-hmm. they're also both artists i think that can slot comfortably in like lots of different contexts like Tori Amos could play like a singer songwriter type festival but she could also play like maybe like more of a gothier type festival or more like alternative rock type thing like she can go in both lanes the cure I could see playing on like heavier music lineups just because there'd be a lot of bands I'm sure there's like a lot of contemporary like metal and punk bands that had a cure phase at some point so you you could definitely see them popping up uh, there, like, like they could play a when we when we were young type festival for the '80s and '90s, and they could also play that new metal festival. I think, and like, not be outrageous. Yeah, Robert Smith has done guest uh, vocals on both Blink One Eighty Two and Deftones songs, so absolutely. Yeah, one thing I've noticed this year, and it's nowhere near on the level of Kate Bush and Metallica and the bump they got from Stranger Things. But I've seen more enthusiasm for Alice in Chains this year than I have in a while. You know, the 30th anniversary of Dirt was this year, and there was a lot of conversation about that record. That's another band that I think straddles a lot of different scenes and eras, I think more so than a lot of grunge bands. The thing with the early 90s is that I don't feel like there's as much nostalgia or demand for that era because it is more of a gen x era and millennials and zoomers just Mm -hmm. seem to have more affection for like the late 90s like that's the 90s for them more so than the early 90s but alice in chains to me seems like a band that can transcend that maybe a little easier than other bands of of their ilk so i'm curious about them i'm also wondering about and this is this is just based, I guess, on Alex G <laughs> talking about this band. But Audio Slave is a band. I wonder if they're going to have a moment. Because if you're 18 and you love Turnstile, it's not that much of a leap to get into that first Audio Slave record. Like, I think that there's a lot of bands... And there's a lot of bands now that maybe aren't directly influenced by Audio Slave, but that's sort of like <laughs> funky, yeah. heavy riffing rock. Um, I feel like that's having more of a moment now. And I, I just wonder if maybe, you know, if, if the Rage Against the Machine reunion has been derailed, I guess you can't have an Audio yeah. Slave reunion, unfortunately, because <laughs> of no Chris Cornell. But I don't know if... Okay, I've, I've talked myself into a corner with this one. <laughs> Maybe they can have like a real like sort of reunion tour, but I, I do think that there's a lane there for maybe that band uh, being revived. I don't. Did you see that interview where Alex G talked about hearing like a stone and yeah. thinking it was like the greatest song of all time? Yeah, I did see that one, and like to to a similar degree. Uh, after you're done this listening to this podcast, not during after. 
go find the the video for Kochi's the like Audio Slaves. Uh, I think it's the uh, lead off track from uh, the first record. The first minute of this is is just the gr- like music video that art form. It is just the zenith of this particular art form. Like I cannot express in words just how fucking awesome the first minute of the Cochise video is. Now, the rest of the song, I, I I usually don't listen to it after that, but look, Audio Slave definitely could have played uh the Sick New World Festival. That's like without a doubt. Um and I think you're kind of right in that, you know, Rage Against the Machine riffs with uh, you know, Chris Cornell type vocals, not all that far off from turnstile because I think that I don't know, like you're talking me into perhaps 311 being the, the the band that maybe gets rediscovered. I think that people still have an affection for them. Maybe they get like a, a you know, that sort of low level, oh yeah, I like Sublime. Of course I fuck with them. So, you know, we we we've 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 gotten out of the the corner of Audio Slave that you painted yourself in and ended up with 311. This is just like magic happening here at IndieCast. <laughs> now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so uh, I want to talk about a solo project from a uh, respected indie rock outfit uh, that we might have talked about here before called Foxing. Uh, the front person, uh, Connor Murphy, has a project called Smidley, and their new album, Here Comes the Devil, is out today. It's the follow-up from uh, their self-titled album that came out in 2017, which, you know, is... Pr- it's not too far off uh, from where Foxing went with uh, Near My God, and particularly the new record. Um, more of like a psych rock, not psych rock, but psych pop, like uh, an almost late aughts indie sound. I say this as like a card carrying member of the Remembering Some Guys lifestyle. So you have to know I mean this as a compliment. It's not not too dissimilar from Gauntlet Hair at Points or perhaps ah. like Yaysayer or like MGMT. Like, and these are all bands I love. But it's if you take Foxing and you take out maybe some of the more like the emo elements or like the prog, like metal elements and just leave with like a really interesting like kaleidoscopic uh God, I say kaleidoscopic and feel like such an asshole. Like, that is such music critic talk. <laughs> it's quite angular, ethereal, and kaleidoscopic. Um, but, yeah, it's just seeing, like, a very interesting songwriting voice taking things in more of a, like, like bedroom psych pop direction. And, you know, like, I know that it's not going to, you know, make people forget about Foxing. Uh, but I think it just shows an interesting wrinkle to this guy's artistry. And moreover, it's touring from, he's a, uh, I believe he's opening for Barty Strange right now uh, in the Midwest. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's an album that, you know, might not get uh, as much run as like a Foxing record, but nonetheless just shows that there's just like a lot of talent in this band and a lot of interesting things. And, you know, perhaps this is the, this is like their last step before they truly go new metal, which they've been promising for a few, for a few uh, years. So I don't know. Let's see. So the record I want to talk about is by a band called Gold Dust, and I guess it's more of a project than a band, uh, by a Massachusetts singer-songwriter named Stephen Pierce. Uh, and uh, this record that he put out that I like a lot, it's called The Late Great Gold Dust. And 
if you read his press materials, he references the Grateful Dead and My Bloody Valentine. Wow. And you can probably guess from those references that he is combining folk music with shoegaze music. And this is something that we're seeing quite a bit lately. Obviously, you have a band like Wednesday that personifies that combination. We talked about the band Knife Play on this show a few weeks back. Uh, And then you have this band Gold Dust. And I like this record a lot. I've been listening to it all week. And what I would say is that, compared to the other records I mentioned, this one is probably a little dreamier, a little more sparkly. There's something uh, really huge sounding about this record, even though I'm guessing that the album was made under relatively modest circumstances. Uh, but whereas like a band like Wednesday really leans into the heaviness of the riffs and, and juxtaposing it like with the uh, sort of country-ish elements of the songwriting, this isn't really a heavy record. It is, again... I'm going to use the word sparkly. Is that another asshole rock critic word? I don't think so. I, I think sparkly, not. like, sparkly is how normal people would talk about it. Like, you would probably <laughs> okay. come up with, like, I don't know, like, that's usually what ethereal co- helps cover. Yeah, I, this record is not angular, but it is ethereal. Uh, so I'll, I'll apply that asshole rock critic word to it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, a, it's just really pretty songs that have a real sense of of breadth and expansiveness to them so again uh the band's called gold dust the record is called the late great gold dust and uh i recommend checking that out we have now reached the end of our episode thank you for listening to this edition of IndieCast. we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week and if you're looking for more music recommendations sign up for the indie mixtape newsletter you can go to uprocks.com backslash indie and i recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box